All righty. Today we are in Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to begin with verse 11. And this book is so fascinating to me because oftentimes you see this book being taught in like conferences, pastors' conferences, that kind of thing. And the idea to actually teach it in a lady study came to me about a year ago when I was in Bogota, Colombia of all places, and they were teaching it in English, translating it into Spanish, and so it was quite interesting, but you know, it was kind of a slow study because they would say a phrase and then they would have to translate it into Spanish, and so you got to really absorb what was being spoken while it was being translated, but I'm going, wow, this is such a good book, and you can apply this to everyday lives, not just for pastors and leaders and stuff like that. Because actually, most of us are a leader in some capacity, aren't we? I mean, whether you're a full-time mom, you're leading your your children. And so uh, there's a lot of good things in here that we can apply to our daily lives. And so before we get into this uh, scripture today, let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are so blessed that you have given us this wonderful book that we can apply. It has so much practical uh, things in it that we can apply in our lives in whatever capacity we are in. And so as we go through this amazing scripture that you've given to us this morning, would you anoint this time? Would you open our eyes to see and our ears to hear exactly what you would like us to learn from this scripture today? So we love you. We thank you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, today's title is Count the Cost, which means calculate the consequences of something. And a lot of times this is in a negative connotation. It's like, you know, apparently he didn't count the cost, you know. When they were, usually it applies to when uh, young men are doing stupid things, you know, having raised a couple of them, I know that they can do some dumb things from time to time. And so, you know, they don't really think it through. They're going, okay, if I do this, this is going to happen. And so, Today, though, it, was, it is counting the cost so that you know exactly what you're getting into. And so in Nehemiah's case, it was rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and all the heartache, trouble, and hard work that this was going to take. He wanted to know exactly what he was in for. Not so that he could have second thoughts. He wasn't second-guessing his calling. He just wanted to know what he had to plan for. And in order to be prepared, he had to check everything out. And so that's what we find him doing uh, this morning. So verse 11 starts out, so I arrived in Jerusalem. Now this journey took four months. Remember, they had to do it on foot. He may have been riding a donkey. Either way, that's a long time to travel. I just got back from vacation. We did a lot of traveling. And I can't even imagine. I mean, I was exhausted after 10, 11 days. I can't imagine going four months you know, not having a soft bed or anything, not having, you know, a water source that you can depend on. So he'd been traveling from Babylon to Jerusalem for four months. Had to have been tired. Hence, it says three days later, so he took a break for three days, probably kind of got a lay of the land, you know, try to figure out the culture. This is the first time, remember, that he had been to Jerusalem. He was born and raised and worked in Babylon. So he had never seen the city. So he says, and I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. 
I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey I was riding. And it's interesting that he did this all in secret. He didn't bring any pack animals with him because, you know, they would have been noisy. That, and he was just kind of surveying the land. He doesn't need a whole uh, entourage to go with him. He just wanted to check things out. And so he was only on a donkey. Apparently, he was still kind of tired from his four-month-long vacation trip. And he told no one of his plans. He wanted to survey everything, to watch and observe everything. He didn't want to jump in because sometimes that can cause problems if you go in and you don't know what you're doing yet. And so as the story unfolds, we found out why he had to keep everything so secret because he had those that were in opposition to him and he had to keep people out of the loop and especially did not want the enemies to find out what he was about to do. And then it continues on in verse 13. After dark, I went out through the valley gate, past the jackal's wall, and over the dung gate to inspect the broken walls and burned gates. And so I have a a little map here. So he went out. Here's the valley gate. And he went all the way around to the dung gate. And it's called the dung gate because it was where they dumped the dung. (laughs) Very practical people. You know, I loved doing a little study on why they named the gates, and it was actually very simple. You know, this one up here, Jeshana, that means old, so that's the old gate. So you can kind of imagine how people say, oh, you know what, go out the old gate, or go out the sheep's gate up here, or the fish gate, because, you know, they were near a lake, and so all the stinky fish came in through the fish gate. All the sheep came in through the sheep's gate. And the inspection gate, the east gate, which the east gate is still in Jerusalem, by the way. Interesting little note. Um, that area on the Temple Mount is patrolled, or excuse me, controlled by the Muslims. You know, the dome of the, the, the mosque is up there, and the dome of the rock, and that kind of thing is up there. And the eastern gate is the gate that Jesus is going to come through when he takes control of the world once again. Okay, eastern gate. Amen. So you know what the Muslims did? They walled it up. As if that's going to hold back Jesus when he comes through. And I looked at it, and I'm going, that is so silly. They literally walled it all up. And I'm going, why? I mean, when he steps on the Mount of Olive, it splits. So do you think a little gate that man built is going to hold him back? No. But anyway, that's kind of an interesting note. But that is the east gate right here. And, of course, the horse gate. Guess what that's for? Horses. And water gate, that's where they get Water, fountain gate, and so forth. And so anyway, he walked out and focused his attention that night mainly on the southern part of the wall. And it was just as the messenger had said. Everything is in, uh, you know, it's just completely in disrepair. Most of it's rubble. It was in horrible condition. And then it goes on, verse 14. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, which is interesting. The king's pool is, let me see, right here. 
That is, you can actually go in there. They found it a few years ago in Jerusalem. It's also known as Hezekiah's Tunnel, and you can actually go in there. It's a little cramped, and you're actually going through tunnels. Kind of gives me the creeps a little bit. Um, But you can go in there, and you can see all this fresh water running through there. And so that is the king's pool. And then he says, but my donkey couldn't get through the rubble. That's kind of sad. I mean, donkeys are pretty sure-footed, aren't they? And so, though it was still dark, I went up the Kidron Valley instead, inspecting the wall before I turned back and entered again at the valley gate. So he had walked all over that that city. And Nehemiah was checking out the wall so that he knew exactly what needed to be done. And he wanted to check it out without anybody putting in their two cents. Because, you know, it's run by the Jewish leaders, and you know what? Politicians will be politicians no matter when. So they probably said, well, I think, Nehemiah, if you're going to repair the gate, you need to do my part of the city first, you know. Or, you know, and the other guy was going, well, I want you to do my part of the city. So he didn't want any of that input. He wanted to hear directly from God. And that's a great lesson for us to, to learn Sometimes we need to just be quiet and let God speak to us. When we feel like he is calling us to do something, not announcing it to everyone yet and just letting God speak into your heart, that's important. You want to let him minister to you to find out, is this something that is my own flesh or is this something that uh, is of God? So Nehemiah was being wise, keeping it to himself and between him and God. Then he says in verse 16, The city officials did not know I had been out or what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. See, he just wasn't ready yet to reveal his plans. He wanted to find out, God, what do you want to do? I don't want to know what all these guys want. I want to know what you want. See, the more people who knew the, the plan also, the bigger chance it was that the enemies of the Jewish people would find out and thus hinder the plan to rebuild, you know, try to put a, a wrench into the whole thing. And then verse 17, but now, he was ready, but now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. So now Nehemiah reveals the plan. Even though their city was in trouble, he saw that it was possible because with God, all things are possible. God had told him to do it, so he says, all right, let's get busy. He was rallying the troops. Then he, verse 18, then I told them about the gracious hand of God, about the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. And they replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. So even though the task was enormous, Nehemiah was encouraging them by telling them the positive events, the confirmations that he had received leading up to this point. You know, first he had found out the need. Remember, then he prayed for a long time. What did he pray and fast for like four months? That's important. Then he approached the king. The king was in favor of it. See, all these events were very encouraging to Nehemiah and confirming the call that he was given. 
So the people were encouraged and they began to work. But, verse 19, but when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of our plan, they scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king, they ask. And it's interesting when they say, are you rebelling against the king? (laughs) He says, when they do that, that will put fear into your heart. It's like, oh, we don't want the king to hear that we're rebelling against him because that's not what we're doing. We just want to rebuild our wall. So it's just a, a tactic that people use. But let's look at these guys. They are enemies of the Jewish people. First, we have Sanballat. He was a Horonite and also a regional governor. We have Tobiah, the Ammonite, also a regional governor. So these people had important jobs in the region. They had their own, just like a governor here in the state, you know, they had their own territories that they were in charge of. And then we had Geshem the Arab. Not sure what he was in control of. They just call him the Arab. So all three of these were enemies of the Jewish people way back when. See, the Jewish people had conquered decades before, generations before, they had conquered these people when they took over the promised land. And so maybe it's a little payback or something, I don't know. But they did not want the Israelites to rebuild. They didn't want them to prosper. They were kind of worried, well, hey, you're going to take some resources from us. Uh, You know, they were totally against the rebuilding of the wall. And they were upset. And so they started off with ridicule, you know. It's funny. It's said that ridicule is the weapon of those who have no other. And that's so true, isn't it? Because they wanted to discourage and ridicule the Jewish uh, leaders, Nehemiah specifically, saying, what, you know, why would you do that? You can't do that. It's too big. They were just saying, you'll never get it done. And so that's their, their strategy at first. And we'll see, they kind of up their, their tactics later on. But Nehemiah was ready for him. Verse 20, he says, I replied, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We, his servants, will start rebuilding the wall. But you have no share, legal right, or historical claim in Jerusalem. And I go, ooh, bam, right? It's like, you know, first he starts out, the God of heaven is on my side, on our side. We will get this done because God is on our side. Besides, it's none of your business, right? And so he left nothing open to interpretation. He, he, he addressed them very pointedly, and he said that God will see this done. So what can we learn uh, from today's scripture, specifically lessons regarding our own personal walks with the Lord? Well, the first one we find out is count the cost, Luke 14, 28 through 30, it's one of our memory verses today. It says, but don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. So is Jesus actually talking about construction 
No, he's talking about our personal walks. If you read before that, he was saying, you know, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. And so what he's saying is count the cost. Know what this is going to cost you before you say yes to me being your Lord. You see, and when you accept him as Savior and Lord, that means he is now your boss. Jesus is the boss. So oftentimes, people will say, oh, well, I kind of like him as my Savior, but, you know, this whole Lord thing, I want to still be the boss. You know, but that's not how it works. He is now your boss. That is the cost of him being your Savior. Is he a good boss? Of course. I would rather have him as my boss than who was the boss before, and that was the enemy. You get one or the other. You never get to be your own boss. That's not the way it works, right? So we think we're our own boss, and the enemy allows us to think that we're our own boss, but that's not. We're, we are subject to him and our own flesh and our own sin. You see, you've been bought with a price. Your life is not your own. You are the servant of the Most High, and that is a great place to be because he is the best boss because he loves us so much and he created each one of us for a specific purpose. So you don't want to make a scene about being a follower of Christ and all that and then say, oh, well, I don't get to be the boss. Oops, I guess I'm not going to do this Christian thing anyway. Have you ever heard that from people? Cracks me up. Yeah, I tried this whole Christian thing. It didn't work for me. I'm going, how can it not work? I mean, it's not like, you know, buying a mattress. You know, it's like, geez. <laughs> so anyway, we need to count the cost when we step out in faith and allow the Lord to use us. And so this doesn't mean that you don't step out in faith. But what it does mean, just like Nehemiah, know what you're getting into so that you can prepare as much as possible. Second lesson, keep it between you and the Lord. Proverbs 29.11 says, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Now, this can be applied a lot to maybe our tempers, but, you know, sometimes we just say too much to people. We, God's saying, you know what? I need to minister to you. I want to talk to you. I don't want anybody else's opinion coming in. I'm trying to talk to you one-on-one personally here. I want to minister to your heart. And what we saw with Nehemiah is he kept the plans to himself. And no doubt during that time, he prayed a lot. And he fasted a lot. He wanted to make sure he was on the right road. And it's there you find out if this is your own desires or if this is really the Lord calling you to do something. If he had immediately gone to friends or other leaders or whomever, uh, the issue would become cloudy because everybody has their own opinions, right? But if you think that the Lord is asking you to step out in faith, then what's the harm in meditating and praying about it further and letting God confirm it in your own heart and giving you that peace that passes all understanding? And, of course, you can have a a confidant to, you know, a sister in the Lord to pray with you, a spouse saying, you know what, I'm thinking the Lord might be calling me, us, to do this. You know, let's lift it up in prayer. And he will speak, you know, if you're married, he will speak to both you and your husband. Uh, If it's, you know, if, if you're unmarried, then he will confirm it. 
He will confirm it because these are big decisions in our lives. And he understands that we struggle with faith from time to time. So why is this important? Uh, I once knew a couple. And they just knew they were called to Hawaii because they saw this in the clouds. And we go, all righty, you know, I think I'm called to Hawaii too. I mean, (laughs) wow, you know. The beach, the warm weather, the cool, you know, cool breezes, you know. I mean, there's a lot to like about Hawaii, right? And so they just knew they were called to Hawaii. Didn't know what they were called to do. They just knew they were called to go to Hawaii, you know, maybe be missionaries there. You know, I'm going, well, you know it's actually, a, you know, part of the U.S. It's not like a country or anything, right? But anyway, um, so they packed up their kids, everything. And they had no job, no house. They just showed up on the island. And, you know, it. They came back two years later with their tails between their legs going, oh my goodness, what a mess. You see, they didn't follow any of these steps. Nothing. They didn't truly seek God's will. They were just going, okay, we love the Hawaiian Islands. Well, everybody loves the Hawaiian Islands. I mean, so anyway, you know, and I had to, I had compassion on them. It's like when I found out that they'd come back and they were pretty beat up, you know, I could only have compassion on them because, you know, we're all capable of that. That's why, you know, if you do see the Hawaiian Islands in the clouds, um, pray about it, you know. Keep it to yourself. <laughs> because, you know what, they looked pretty foolish. They really looked foolish. So after you have sought the Lord and he has confirmed it in your heart and you have peace, then you can do what Nehemiah did. Proclaim it. Be bold about your calling. 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. And this can be applied to your, uh, your own testimony, but also the work that the Lord is doing personally in your life. Uh, once Nehemiah knew it was God's will to rebuild Jerusalem, and he counted the cost, then he told everyone about the plan. He was ready, and he gave his reasons why. He says, number one, you know, I prayed, for four, I prayed and fasted for four months, and God confirmed it in my heart. And then I went to the king, and somehow God spoke into the king's life, and he was favorable. He gave me the time off. He gave me all the supplies I needed. He gave me everything. That can only be the hand of God. And so he gave the reasons. And the reason why that is so important is because it's like, the people are going, okay, well, what makes you think you're qualified to do this? You know, who, who made you boss, you know? So he's saying, no, God has given me this task. And after that, you make a plan. Proverbs 16.9 tells us, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And that is so true, but it's important to plan. I can't walk up to here. I've got, let me see, how many pages of notes? I have 12 pages of notes here. You see, I need to do what God has called me to do. I need to make sure that I know the scriptures. I need to know uh, the references, how to find them. You know, yes, can God actually supernaturally speak through me? Of course, and he does that for all of us. But he still wants you to do the planning. He wants you to prepare for what God has called you to do. 
This is important. You can't just say, oh, you know, whatever. I want to be lazy, and God's just going to work through me. It doesn't work that way. I have done that. You know, I have had that awkward, oh, wow, I am so unprepared for this, and I'm embarrassed, and I'm humiliated. And after you do that once, trust me, you learn your lesson. So, <laughs> so I always have my notes. <laughs> so anyway, but how do I know my plans are God's plans? And that's important, isn't it? Commit your works to the Lord, and your thoughts will be established. Proverbs 16.3 tells us. So what our lesson here is telling us is that like Nehemiah, we prepare to do the work of the Lord. And then let him draw from what we have studied, what we have read, what we have prepared to do. Then God draws from that. The way it works, it's like you can read the scriptures. This is why reading the word of God is so important. God can't draw from his word if you haven't first put it into your heart. So it's so important. Yes, he can always do things supernaturally, and he does. But those are in special circumstances. I was telling the the leaders earlier about a story when I was in, um, when Jeff and I were in Austria. We were serving there at a conference center, and a conference was coming up, and Pastor Chuck Smith had come a couple days early, and uh, he was just kind of hanging out with us. We had a small staff, maybe, oh, I think there was eight of us. And on Wednesday nights, we would do a little Bible study and, you know, kind of a Devo kind of thing. And, you know, of course, we invited him, saying, hey, you're welcome to come to our Devo. And, oh, by the way, you mind teaching? You know? <laughs> so he says, sure, you know. And so he just sits down, totally unprepared. He says, you know, he didn't even have his bags with him. Something had happened to his bags. He didn't have his Bible with him. And so he says, can I borrow somebody's Bible? And so we handed him a Bible. He says, turn to James. And then he just started reading through the book of James and expounding on it. And it was one of the most amazing Bible studies I had ever heard. And he was totally unprepared. You know, we just handed him a Bible and say, please teach us. You know, but of course, you know, because he had put so many years into studying the word, it was like second nature to him. And so the Lord does that for us. But that is a circumstance where, you know, he was caught unawares. But you never know. We always need to be ready to give a defense for the hope that lies within us. Amen? So what our lesson here is telling us is that Nehemiah was prepared to do the work of the Lord. You know, like my friends who were called to Hawaii, they had not prepared. They had no job, no home, nothing. And they did everything wrong because they didn't prepare. Let me give you an example of what the, the right way of doing things would be. Say you're called into the mission field. Well, first thing that's going to happen is God will reveal to you the need. There is a church in Uganda that needs a pastor or a missionary to come and teach the children or minister to the women. First you find out the need, just like Nehemiah first found out the need. And then when you, when you find out and your heart is, is pricked, it's kind of like, oh, I think I need to do something about this. Well, the first thing you start doing is you pray, Lord, is this you? 
Is this of you or is this just my emotions? And he will begin to confirm it. People will come up to you. They'll say, you know, I was praying for you the other day and the Lord really impressed upon my heart that he's trying to to lead you in a different direction. You know, you start to have these little confirmations here and there. And then you begin to make your plans. How can I get to, say, Uganda? You know, how am I going to be supported? People will come up to you and say, you know, I think I'm supposed to support you in whatever you feel like you're, you're called to do. You know, you just don't want to fly to a foreign country and say, okay, Lord, what am I going to do now, you know, without a home or anything? You know, that's not how God works. Can he? Of course, he can do anything he wants. But generally, that's not what he does. If you are truly called, then confirmations will begin to happen. Uh, I'm often asked how we, Jeff and I, ever came to this church. And I remember very distinctly exactly how it happened. And it was the day that uh, Pastor Steve passed away. And they had called Jeff because Jeff was a good friend. And we both looked at each other and we go, oh, my goodness, we're supposed to be in South Bay. And we both thought that immediately. But we didn't do anything. What, did, what we did instead was, you know what, let's just pray and see what God's going to do. Next thing we know, somebody calls us and says, um, one of the, uh, the board members, he calls and says, would you consider being on the list of pastors to be considered? Jeff said, sure. And that was it. We didn't say, you know, anymore. We just continued to pray and fast. Six months go by, and suddenly we get out of the blue, we get a call and say, you know, we want you to come in. We want to talk to you. Jeff says, okay. And then they called us back. We want you to come in again. And this time bring your wife. And I'm going, oh, dear. <laughs> what did I do now, right? And so... Um, so we sat down in the boardroom, and the board members are just firing off questions, one after another, you know, just boom, boom, boom. What about this? What about that? You know, and they're asking both of us, you know, and they were firing them so fast, you know, I'm just giving them quick answers. Next thing I know, one of them just turns to me and says, Connie, are you called here? And I said, yes. And I, I didn't even think about it, just said yes. And he goes, okay. And it was that night they called us and said, Please come to South Bay. And it's like, but we knew this six months before when God originally told us the day Steve passed away, we're supposed to be in South Bay. Now, as a side note, I'm, confession time here, I never liked South Bay. I mean, I loved, <laughs> I loved the church, loved, I, you know, because Jeff taught here quite a bit, loved to come visit. I loved the fellowship. But I hated the city. And so Steve was always calling Jeff, saying, Jeff, I want you to come on staff. And we would go, nope, 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 we don't like the city. Remember, you know, we're country folk. We kind of like it in the mountains. And so, you know, we would always say, no, we can't live in the South Bay. And now the Lord says, you're going to South Bay. Okay. All right, guess I'm going to be a city girl after all, you know. So, you know, that's the way God confirms these things in our hearts. You know, he makes it so obvious. This was such a big decision. That's why we never said a word that we felt like we were supposed to be here. We never said a word to anyone. It was just between Jeff and I and the Lord. And so it was, it was such an encouragement to us when we just saw God working in the background. And we didn't really do anything but pray. It's pretty cool when you think about it. 
So, thank you, thank you. So, you plan, and the Lord will direct your steps. All right. Lesson five, be direct with the opposition. Now, that does not mean you get to be rude. Um, Sometimes, you know, if somebody hurts our feelings, boy, we want to lash out, don't we? How dare you? How do you know what God's talking to me about? Proverbs 12, 16 says, the vexation of a fool is known at once. In other words, the, the idiocy of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Amen to that. This is something we can live by, girls. Uh, Proverbs 15.1 then says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So in other words, when we are harsh back, that just keeps the argument going. That's what happens there. So remember how Nehemiah handled uh, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem? He didn't get mad at them. He just spoke directly and truthfully to them. In other words, he said, it ain't your business, guys. It's God's. God's got this. He called me to do this. I'm going to do it. So sometimes when we come against opposition, when we step out in faith, that could be really discouraging, can't it? Uh, When we were first called to Austria, I remember Jeff's dad saying, why would you want to give up? what you have here in the States, and go to a foreign country. And it was really discouraging for him. He says, you're, you're, you're stupid. You know, of course, at that time, I must say that Jeff's dad did not know the Lord. But he was really discouraging. And we had to really rely on the fact that, okay, no, we're, we're called to go. This is what God has called us to do. But it was really discouraging, and we never know when that discouragement's going to come. So we need to be sure of our calling. It could be uh, fellow Christians who don't understand your calling. It could be family members. That's usually where it comes from. Uh, it could be from. Uh, it could be from fellow workers. You know, fellow employees. You never know when you're going to get that opposition. So be prepared for it. You know, again, be prepared to have an answer for the hope that lies within you. So when you get mocked or ridiculed or told you're being stupid for following what you know God has called you to do, then just be gentle and kind. But tell them it's basically between you and God. It isn't any of their business. But you have to be kind and gentle understanding that they don't understand. All right, last, but certainly not least, give all the glory to God. That is so simple. Second, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 10.31. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Because without him, we can do nothing. If you think that your calling is going to give you fame and fortune or recognition, any of those things, that is the wrong motivation. That just tells me that, or it should tell yourself that you are not called. That this is a work of the flesh, and that is something you don't want to do because, boy, when it's a work of the flesh, like my friends going to Hawaii, that was a work of the flesh. God had a purpose in it. He taught them a lesson, yes, but it was a very painful lesson that they had to learn. But you see, they, they, it was a work of the flesh in their, in their instance. They were thinking, wow, Hawaii is so beautiful, you know, I could surf all day, you know, teach a Bible study at night. I mean, 
what's not to like, right? And so, you know, just be careful that whatever you do, you're doing it for the glory of God, doing it for his kingdom, his purposes. And when you do that, and when you pray and pray, and after that you pray some more, then give the glory to God. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, there's so much that we can draw from this morning and this study. Father, we never want to step out in the flesh. We want to always be in the center of your will. So whenever we are pondering what you would like for our lives, your will for each one of our lives, would you give us that peace that passes all understanding so that when we, we ponder these things, we know in our heart that this is what you want and nothing else. Don't let others discourage us, Lord, when we know our path has been made straight. And so as we discuss this scripture further, Lord, would you just anoint this time? Would you bless these ladies, I ask in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen.